Hello and welcome to Making It, a story podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write a dissertation, um, raise a kid, and maybe get a job. Uh, and today I am here uh, with Joseph E. Taylor III, uh, who is professor and former Canada Research Chair in Environmental History in Simon Fraser University. Uh, and we are going to be talking about his uh, book, Persistent Callings, Seasons of Work and Identity on the Oregon Coast. Uh, good morning, uh, Jay. How's it going? Very good. Thank you. Uh, and if you want uh, to find uh, uh, great places to buy uh, persistent callings from places that are not owned by Jeff Bezos on uh, uh, Jay's website, I think you have a link to where you can get it from local bookstores. Is that right? Yes. Um, so uh, uh, Persistent Callings is, is, is a book about uh, labor in Oregon. And I was really excited when I saw a review of this because I'm from Oregon. My dad uh, grew up on the Oregon coast. I'm from Eugene. Um, and I never read a history book about Oregon. I was talking with with uh, some friends yesterday and uh, uh, talking about Oregon. I realized that 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 not a lot of people know a ton about Oregon. So Jay, just start off, uh, us off. Tell me a little bit about Oregon. What should we know about Oregon to understand your story? Well, um, I think the first thing that I always try and tell people is that there's the New York Times version of Oregon, which tends to be, uh, from the outside, understood as this liberal, uh, kind of really tolerant place. Mm. And then there's the messiness of actual Oregon, which is deeply divided between urban and rural, between very liberal and very not liberal. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's uh, ge uh, geologically and environmentally divided between uh, west of the Cascades and east of the Cascades, where the rain shadow is. But even west of the Cascade is um, uh, both very urban along the I-5 corridor, at least portions of it. But if you cross the uh, coastal range to the absolute coast of Oregon, it's much more conservative and much more rural and still parts of it at least, deeply wedded to the natural resource extraction economy of one sort or another. Yeah. And so when you're when when I'm hanging out in Oregon, something that's just always people are always talking about is there's 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 persistent political controversies about some sort of resource extraction. People are complaining about logging or about fishing. So what what do people do? How do people make their living um, in this coastal area? Just let's get like the the bird's eye view of how people make their living before we dig into the stuff in your book? Well, historically, it was dominated by uh, fishing, uh, farming, especially dairy farming, and logging. Uh, but um, the tourist economy was always really important as well, although seasonal. And even, But even in the 19th century, there were places like Pacific City, Oregon, that had a regular flow of campers and other people coming in uh, for the summer, uh, for the summertime. Really? I, 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 that's, that's so surprising to me. I think of tourism as something that, that, that only really got going in the past 30 or 40 years. Like when I'm a tourist, I feel like I'm some sort of historical blip, like an, ano an anomaly that shouldn't be there. But there was tourism in, in the Oregon coast back in the 19th century. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't, uh, we didn't invent consumption in the 20th century, and urbanites have been trying to flee the city periodically since the city was created in North America. Yeah. So, uh, that, and Oregon, you know, there were certain places, and Pacific City turns out to be one of the most important uh, simply because it was one of the most accessible places for people to come and see the coast. Why is that? Why is it so accessible? Uh, it is the uh, from the Willamette Valley, and especially Salem, which is uh, kind of where it's uh, uh, latitudinally uh, proximate to. Um, it is the lowest, shortest uh, uh, run over the coastal range. Hmm. Oh, so it's just it's it's really easy to, to it's like physically easy to get to. Yeah. So so just to set the scene, we have we have Oregon where. Uh, you have a number of big divides. You have urban Oregon. Uh, you have the desert rain shadow Oregon, which we're not going to really talk about. And then you have have a rural Oregon, which is much different, uh, oriented towards farming and resources extraction. Let's talk about kind of the star of your book now, the big resource that, that that's being extracted, salmon. Tell me about salmon. Um, in your book, you, 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 you teach me two 
fantastic words that I'm going to mangle uh, uh, the pronunciation of. Um, but but tell me about Salmon's Andramalus and Paris nature and why that's important for uh, uh, this area of Pacific Sea and, 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 and the Nestaca. Right. Well, Salmon... Um is um, a known quantity to Europeans uh, long before they know of North America. Um, but they were uh, largely consuming as an elite item, salmon and trout in the 1400s, 1500s uh, and beyond. When they get yeah. to North America, they, they first confront Atlantic salmon as well. When they get to the Pacific, they run into a very different creature and it takes um, scientists quite a while to basically wrap their heads around what's not one species of salmon, but actually six or seven, depending on how you argue it. Um, but they're also, uh, their nature is very different because uh, like Atlantic salmon, they're anadromous, which means that they uh, spawn in fresh water, but they mature in salt water, mostly because they're taking advantage of the uh, far more nutrient-rich oceans to grow much larger than normal trout size hmm. uh, as a result. Uh, and then they come back to the rivers to spawn. What's different about Pacific salmon, uh, with the partial exception of uh, steelhead, is that once they spawn, they die. And that's the Semoparis part of that uh, uh, description. And uh, in the 19th century and the early 20th century, and I talk about this at length in Making Salmon, uh, my first book, is that um, scientists are genuinely confused and almost appalled by the fact that they see these big, healthy, tasty fish come swimming far up rivers and then spawning and then not going back to the ocean, which hmm. in their minds is a tremendous waste. And, and it's disturbing. They die. They die in these, the, in, in, in something that's, that, that is a little disturbing um, to watch, right? Like there's, there's, I've, I've, I, when, when I read in your book about uh, salmon rotting as they're as they're as they're swimming. I, I looked up images of it, and it's, it's it's shocking to see. Yeah, well, their body goes through a tremendous physiological change. They stop eating as they start uh, moving towards their home streams, and uh, they channel all of the latent energy that's in their muscle and fat towards essentially growing their gonads. And thus, by the time they get into the rivers, they are beginning to rot, physically rot, and fall apart. And it's, it's a giant quest just to get to the, the, the gravels and uh, have sex. And they're usually dead within a day or two. Oh, wow. Um, so tell me about how uh, uh, the wealth of, of salmon in, in, in the particular part of Oregon that we're talking about, the, the Nestaca region, uh, how Native peoples uh, uh, interacted with salmon. Well, uh, at one level, they interacted like every other human uh, population that engages with these anadromous fish. Uh, they're a marvelous resource because they go to sea, they accrue the nutrients of sea, the sea, they come back, and you can set your calendar hmm. to when they're going to arrive. Uh, and actually, you can even pick where you want to catch them. The most uh, uh, Aboriginal people around the world have always basically relied on a few technologies that are largely relying on the advantages of the geography of the river, places where it narrows, where fish yeah. have to jump, uh, falls, or other places. They can just sit there and wait for these tasty pieces of fish to arrive, and then they will go through the process of uh, drying them, cooking them, storing them. And this is key to understanding why... Um, Northwest Coast um, Aboriginal people are anthropologically unique in world history because nowhere else do you see peoples who are non-agrarian and yet who live such a, a settled, um, non-migratory life yeah. because they can store up tremendous amounts of, in the fall, they can store up tremendous amounts of protein that will carry them through the winter. So how did native peoples fish in the Nestaca? Is it like, uh, I'm imagining with a, a, like a fishing pole and a line, right? 
or no, no, that's that is the least efficient way. And you're looking at people, anybody who's trying to catch fish either for food or for sale, uh, issues uh, uh, with uh, rod and uh, uh, reel type technology because it's it's deliberately inefficient really uh, <laughs> yeah you know, it, well that's that's the history of sporting is to invent harder ways of capturing things to demonstrate your virtue and expertise hmm. for for people who depend on fish they they weave nets they build weirs uh they use spears uh, they find uh opportunistic places to uh best capture fish and they you know uh during the harvest season the intense harvest season they're throwing them over both shoulders as fast as they can because they need to get all that protein before the rivers start flooding the rains come the rivers flood and then it becomes very hard to capture them and well so let's just let's just give give me a sense of the weight of these things because i i when my dad's described uh uh uh, the salmon, the Pacific coast, like, and, and in your book, when you describe, you have pictures of some of these salmon, they're a lot bigger than the salmon that I'm used to seeing in the supermarket. Right. Right. Well, there, there are a variety of different uh, species of what's called Ankerhinkus, which is Pacific salmon uh, genus. Uh, and they range from pinks and cherries, which are mostly only found in uh, Japan that are two to three pounds Uh uh, sockeye are about four pounds. The the fish that ran in the Nestucca River were uh, larger. Silvers were 10 to 20 pounds. Uh, chums, 10 to 15 pounds. Uh, uh, steelhead could range between eight and 15 or 16 pounds. Uh, and then you got to Chinooks. And the Chinooks can, because they, are, look, they, um, they live longer. They tend yeah. to live four to six to seven years even. And thus they can range anywhere from 20 pounds all the way to 60 or 80 pounds. And the old species that used to run far up the Columbia River weighed well over 100 pounds. Wow. And so, so you have, you have in, 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 in the Oregon coast, in the Pacific Northwest in general, just this in, intense bounty of, of, of relatively easily accessible fish that allowed for a settled non-agrarian uh, society. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the qualification on that is salmon is the backbone of the winter stores. But if you live on the coast, you actually have access to a tremendous array of resources, mussels, clams, yeah. crabs, and all sorts of other fish species, plus marine mammals. And uh, at the same time, they're always busy harvesting all sorts of plants and occasionally um, trying to hunt deer, elk, bear, and things like that as well. Plus, they're trading inland uh, along the coast. Okay. Uh, so what happens to, uh, to these people? What happens to these people is mostly a story of um, uh, virgin soil epidemics, uh, and then the uh, the consequences of colonization. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, they're getting hammered from all sides, and epidemics really are the most devastating part of the story, beginning with smallpox in the 1780s or 1770s. Uh, another wave of measles in the early uh, 1800s, and then just wave after wave of those uh, diseases running through this. Along the lower part of the Columbia, they also got hammered by malaria in the late 1820s and early 1830s uh, oh. as well. So populations are uh, drastically reduced long before you get uh, uh, colonial settler uh, uh, movements into the Nestucca Valley. Well, let's, let's talk about... Uh, uh, uh what happens uh, uh, to the Native American populations in 1875 and a little bit through that about early uh, white settlement in, in uh, the Nestucca? Sure. Uh, the story really begins in the 1850s when um, the territorial governors of Oregon and then Washington are uh, tasked with essentially negotiating treaties and uh, getting land sessions from Native groups. And uh, uh, Isaac Stevens in Washington Territory, Joel Palmer in Oregon, set about doing this systematically and, uh, and largely acquire space. But 
there were some earlier treaties, especially negotiated with coastal groups that were never ratified by the Senate. So in 1855, um, the president of the United States unilaterally uh, declares a coast reserve, which is over 100 miles long, but 20 miles deep along the Oregon coast. And that becomes essentially a human sump, a place in which uh, officials are going to try and channel a tremendous number of uh, refugees from other places around Western Oregon. Uh, and it's, it's a devastating uh, process for most people who are pushed into environments they never had lived in uh, with poor resources and poor support. Um, and that's also part of the ongoing devastation that happens to uh, indigenous people in Western Oregon. Uh, for the people living in places like the Nesteca Valley, though, they were largely not molested uh, hmm. for uh, quite a while, even when the uh, president would later unilaterally shrink the size of uh, the uh, coastal reserve. That changes in 1875 when it is drastically reduced down to a small postage stamp uh, reserve around uh, the town of Siletz. And then officials come in as they are also encouraging at the same time settlers to come into these places, which they have never legally acquired access uh, uh, land sessions from. Um, mm. And this is still a debatable legal point as a result of this to this day. But um, it's at that point that the remnants of um, Tillamook, Nestucca, uh, Siletz and Alsi people living in um, the Naseka Valley finally get feel tremendous pressure to relocate. Yeah, and let's let's talk about the the. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm I'm in a little speechless. It's 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 a a, a devastating story to think of this. Uh, uh, you know, how how many hundreds of years were people? living in, in, in the Nestucca Valley, fishing, and, and how, how, how long was, was, was human settlement there? Millennia. Millennia. Just in, and, and in yeah. a couple of years, this, these, these multiple tragedies of epidemics and uh, land uh, ex, ex, expropriation, it's, it's uh, heartbreaking. It, 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 it is a process that rolls over everybody sooner or later. Some of these um, remote coastal valleys were able to withstand it, provided that they didn't get infected by, say, maritime traders or yeah. things of that nature. Because each one of these uh, basins, it's a really rugged landscape so that there's not a lot of social intercourse that moves through there, at least on a regular basis. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about uh, uh, early uh, white settlement. And, and, and another animal might uh, pop up in this story, one less interesting than salmon, debatably, uh, the cow. And maybe one of the reasons why people on the West Coast will know this area uh, 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 because of the Tillamook cheese uh, sure. uh, and, and dairy. Well, um, the people who uh, are um, essentially let loose into the valley, the federal, uh, the territorial officials have been feeling pressure for years to open up certain lands. And all these people are agrarians. Mm. Um, and they're trying to move into these places. And in 1875, essentially, the territorial government opens up the gate and lets them flood in. And that becomes the leverage to push uh, uh, the Nestucca uh, residents out of uh, the basin, finally, at that point. But these are people who are agrarians. But it, what exactly they're going to farm is going to be determined ultimately by the environment. They bring in wheat. They bring in corn. They bring in a lot of other things. They also bring in a few milch cows, which are just standard features of agrarian life. Um, and what they quickly began to realize was that the Nestucca, it has kind of arable soil, but it's um, it's really wet. It mm. drains poorly. Uh, it, the bottom lands, which are really lush, are also prone to floods. <laughs> and you get the sense by the early 1880s that people are beginning to realize that this is actually cow heaven. This is yeah. a, a great place to grow grass and let cows loose. 
And then it becomes a process of logging off the bottom lands to create as much space for uh, pasturing as possible. And the cows essentially are uh, one of the um, uh, most important pretexts for understanding how the landscape looks to this day because it becomes diked and it becomes pasteurized by the removal of those low forests. Whereas the hills, and the irony is the the bottomlands are probably more forested at this time than the hills because of fires that had happened in the mid-19th century. Um, And the consequence is settlement is attracted to those bottomlands and only to those bottomlands. And then... Then the challenge becomes for these agrarianists, how to make farming profitable. Because yeah, these are yeah, not because you can't get like, like, are there big cities around? Like how, how are you going to get milk to places where people will buy it? That's the, that is the literal $64,000 question uh, in this case, because um, milk uh, for anybody who's not familiar, is a uh, quickly degrading product. Especially thus, before pasteurization. Right. Well, you know, th- these people are coming in at the beginning of the uh, Pasteur's discoveries and all this. Uh, but the, the key issue is just um, the fragility of a dairy product. And yeah. thus, by the 1880s, in places like uh, central Tillamook, and uh, very quickly in uh, the Nesteca Valley, milk is simply the first stage of the product. What they're going to be producing throughout the ni- late 19th century is primarily butter, hmm. which is, you know, is a durable product that then can be shipped out. It can be cooled, yeah. um, maintained in a cellar. And then when ships come into the harbors, they can ship them out and send it to Portland and they have a marketable item. Yeah. Uh, they also tinker... Uh, a lot of these farms are basically doing their own cheese making as well. And it's a really variable product that comes out of that until the very end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, when farmers first try to create, to pool their resources. And there's several attempts at creating a cooperative arrangement among them. But one of the key moments is when a dairy farmer, a group of dairy farmers in central Tillamook, hire a guy directly from Cheddar, England, who brings Mm. with him the recipe. And then very quickly, what you see is the emergence of a lot of small cheese factories around uh, Tillamook County, both in central Tillamook and in the Nestucca Valley. Um, And all of them are producing essentially the same recipe, and they're all trained by the same cheesemaker. And very quickly, they do a really good job of this. Yeah. And so, so just, I, I just want to underline two big points. The first is the change in the landscape. So first you have these, the, originally you have these densely forested rolling hills along the coast and the lowlands are even more densely forested. But what happens when white settlement comes in is they realize that the lowlands are perfect for cattle and they clear them, right? Is that, is that correct? Well, yeah, the, the, the cattle become the most reliable product. There is some truck farming that goes on in the valley. Uh, very, very early on, there was a small group of people who brought in about 500 head to ranch, uh, but it turned out to be too wet for them. So they left and they actually moved to the eastern flanks of the coast range. The one part of that description I would uh, qualify is that the lowlands are really lush and uh, convenient. The coastal range itself is actually really rugged. These are not okay. rolling hills. These are steep flank sized mountains. They're not very tall. The biggest ones are only uh, 2,000, 2,500 or 3,000 feet high, most of them. But they're very steep, very rugged. And um, in the 19th and early 20th century, mostly barren. Uh, yeah. They are snags and ferns and uh, and low lying brush because of true holocausts that had run through uh, the coast range across several watersheds in the 1850s and 1860s. So 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 that's the the, the, the landscape story, and then we have yeah. a, a a labor story. You have this problem: cows do really well there, milk cows do really well there, but how do you sell? the product. First, they make butter and some people are making cheese. But if you just imagine 
dozens of amateur cheesemakers, the product is inconsistent and sometimes maybe not good. And then you have the invention of cheddar and the development of that delicious Tillamook cheddar that you can buy in your local grocery store right now if you live on the West Coast. Right. And uh, that in turn, um, uh, the stable product of cheddar will in turn put pressure on farmers to essentially standardize their herds. Because at the beginning, um, the cows that were brought in were really uneven in terms of their productivity, their breeds, their reliability. And But over the course of the early 20th century, you can see as cheese becomes a really marketable item, you'll see the co-op in turn pressure individual farmers to standardize their herds so they have a standard product. Yeah. Um, and... Okay, enough about cows. Let's talk about the salmon. What were, what were <laughs> the important animal? Um, what were people doing with the salmon? Were, was it just uh, uh, were people ignoring this massive biological? Well, the way that you described it is, uh, it seems to me that when the salmon are coming upstream, you can just look in the streams and reach in your hand and pick up a salmon, pretty much. So, what were were, were these 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 milk obsessed uh, Swedes and uh, 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 other immigrants just ignoring this 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 massive bounty? No, no. Uh, it, it it it's um, from the very beginning. Um, even uh, the few indigenous people who stuck in, stayed in the area founded constant occupation fishing for the farmers uh, hmm. because they were from the very beginning, even with the transition to a white settler society, still really important as a winter food source, which is remarkable if you consider that these people are overwhelmingly Protestants in the 19th century uh, yeah. who've rejected fish on Friday and all that. And yet the salmon is really important for their staple diets. Um, the real I know transition- my, my Lutheran grandparents, uh, uh, went, back in the 50s, they fed my dad on a diet of salmon that they bought from the Indians in, by the side of the road in, in Coquille, Oregon. Yeah. Um, yep. So, yeah, just my, my little personal history about, about Protestants eating fish. I'll tell you, they also were probably buying them under the table because the, given the regulations at the time, uh, uh, Indians were very deliberately squeezed out of the commercial fisheries in the late 19th and early 20th century. And yet you could buy lots of black market fish yeah. all along the coast. Yeah. Um, but uh, the change comes, uh, there have been commercial fisheries in the Pacific Northwest since 1866. Uh, in the early 18 or in the uh, mid 1870s uh, the Columbia River fishery grew dramatically and then had very terrible problems in 1877 and beyond largely not because of overfishing but because of el ninos hmm. but by the early 1880s wait, 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 what's an el nino okay I, this is one of those things that i hear all the time and uh, uh, i know that it means it, it means the child, and it comes sometime around Christmas. It comes like every seven years. It's something to do with the weather, and that's all I know. Yeah, and that's fair. Um, uh, the full name is the uh, El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO for short. It's a uh, climatic pattern or a relationship really uh, in the equatorial Pacific between two major um pressure systems, a high pressure system over the Eastern Pacific and a low pressure system over the Western Pacific, uh, above essentially Darwin, Australia, that largely blows um, uh, uh, in a westward fashion. And thus, as a result, uh, piles up water and thermal in the Hmm. Western Pacific. But every once in a while, that high pressure zone in the Eastern Pacific relaxes. And when that happens, you'll get a rush of water and of um, uh, temperature eastward. And uh, it tends to coincide with the Christmas season and hence the nickname, the child or El Nino. Some are really mild. Some are very, very strong. In 1877, we had a very strong El Nino where, uh, the water and the uh, the thermal especially uh, was transmitted not just eastward, but radiated out 
over uh, the whole of the South American and North American coasts. And when that happens, it has a tremendous uh, deleterious effect, especially on juvenile salmon's rearing. And the result is that uh, this El Nino that happened in 1876 uh, just devastated runs all along the coast. And the 1877 harvest plummeted dramatically. And everybody immediately thought, because nobody knows the existence of an El Nino yet. Um. Everybody thought, oh, this is overfishing. And that set in a panic. And by the 1880s, you see some uh, cannery uh, packing companies along the Columbia River beginning to think, we need to diversify. We need to spread out to other places so we're not dependent on just one run. Okay, and, and and I just want to 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 point out something about the economics of this. Just like with uh, the creameries that we were talking about, salmon's really perishable. So yes. to make it a marketable commodity, you need some sort of highly capitalized processing. You can't just have people fishing with nets and then selling salmon by the side of the road and having a big enough market to make that work. You need something highly capitalized, a cannery. Right. And those and those that were developed in the Columbia River uh, uh, system start to diversify, start to look for new uh, river systems to fish in after this really, really bad uh, El Nino, which they 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 don't they mistakenly think is a consequence of local overfishing. Right. Um, okay. You know, one of the ironies in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, most people even even in the Pacific Northwest did not eat fresh salmon. What they ate was canned salmon because they were perishable. You either ate, uh, had it uh, smoked or you ate canned, except during the harvest season. And even then, it was, you know, if you lived in, in Portland, uh, there was a market for fresh salmon in the Willamette River. But if you lived more than 10 or 15 miles away, um, that you could only get it very occasionally and just for short periods of time, bec- uh, the fresh salmon at least. Um, but uh, the canned salmon is l- sold literally around the globe. And oh. this this is why it's big business, is that it has this tremendous um, uh, clientele everywhere around the world. And wars turned out to be very good uh, business for the canned salmon industry. So I want to jump ahead a bit just so that we can, we can get uh, fit in sure. the whole story. So we have the expansion of salmon canneries into the Nestaca. Uh, who are selling for a global market. And there's a number of of business fluctuations here. It's not a story of just uh, uh, gigantic uh, eternal growth. Um, But let's talk about one of the big changes to this fishery that happens in in, in 1927. Um, The people beforehand are fishing not like my image of fishing happens in my head, not with a uh, uh, with a with a rod and reel, but they're they're fishing with nets, right? That's correct, and they have to. Nets are necessary. If you wait, if you go far enough upstream, it's easy to capture salmon as they move across riffles. But because salmon are degrading as they move up the river systems, what you want to do is capture them at their freshest, which is yeah. towards the mouth of the river. Yeah. And the mouth of the uh, the the Nestucca Bay, the lower parts of the river, the tidal parts are uh, deeper. Um, much and very hard to see into. It's actually very difficult to see a salmon just looking down into the water unless they're backdropped by a light gravel uh, bottom. Um, And to do that, you need nets. They relied on twine nets, uh, linen particularly. uh, And the consequence was uh, that this is a thick twine and uh, the fish can see it too. So the only time they could really effectively capture fish in any quantities was by working the drifts at, uh, at night. So Mm -hmm. they're, they're largely rowing around in the dark. Uh, They have a lantern uh, in order to kind of see, but it doesn't stretch very far. And they're they're working a portion of the river that's very close to a very dangerous bar between the, the river system and the ocean. So uh, there's a lot of inherent dangers in what people are doing when they're fishing for this. And that fishery starts in 1887. 
with I'm just thinking about how cold it must have been. You're, very. You're, you're fishing at night with 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 probably kerosene lanterns that might blow out if you don't maintain them properly. Uh, trying to 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 capture these fish in the dark. That that was in low freeboard boats. You know, yeah. and you know they and it's all hand work. It's all you you let it out by hand. You row and then you bring it back in by hand. And this is the fall and winter, so it's also wet, and it's really hard and physically taxing work. But that's just this this brings up something that that I'm curious about. One of the big parts of your story is that uh, the people who are doing this fishing are not full time fishers, uh, fishermen. They 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 are supplementing their income. Uh, through doing a bunch of odd jobs, like farming sometimes, working in creamery sometimes, and also fishing. And the way that you write about it, it seems that this incredibly dangerous, cold, and difficult exerting task is is fun? It's uh, meaningful, I think, is the better way. There are times when it's fun. When you're throwing your 100th or 150th salmon in the boat, it's, it feels good. You'll be wiped out, but you know, you've had a good day and that's fun. It's when you're scratching to get two or three in a night of work that it's just the only reason you're doing it is because it's meaningful. And yeah. it can be meaningful because this is how, as one farmer said, how he, he paid off the farm. Uh, for other people, it's the work itself. It's the in, it's the environmental interactions that take place between the hands and the oars and the net and the river and all the sounds around. Um, this is what makes uh, for a wonderful way of working in the world for some people. It's hard work. It's not romantic, but it, it's meaningful. Well, let's let's talk about the big, a big challenge to. Uh, uh... Uh, this meaningful way of work that happens in 1927 when uh, you have kind of a, uh, it, it seems like one of those mock battles that you have in like 18th century poetry between the net fishermen and the rod and reel fishermen, the angle, the anglers who wins and, and, and what does that do to the, to the fisheries? Well, this is also a very old battle uh, that starts in Europe between people who, uh, the gentry and urbanites who increasingly are attracted to angling, rod and reel fishing, uh, as a environmental test, as a masculine endeavor, as a uh, emblem of property. Yeah. Uh, and a group of people who are either, uh, they're called pot fishermen or, uh, you know, uh, uh, essentially market fishermen uh, who are, and it's largely gendered uh, during the, this period. It's, um, you know, but who fish with different technologies that are seen because they are more efficient as unsporting. Yeah. And, and thus illegitimate. And this is a battle that's gone a lot of places that, you know, the battles with uh, 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 essentially subsistence fishers in England and Ireland and Scotland, Germany and other places over salmon and trout uh, go back many, many centuries. Uh, these battles finally come to North America in the 19th century. They start on the East Coast by by the 1880s and 1890s, you're seeing angling beginning to emerge on the West Coast. And because Pacific City was also a tourist destination, you'll see people there by the 1890s beginning to angle, but being very frustrated at all the nets running through the river. And they begin to see these people as an obstacle to their enjoyment. How dare these poor people catch more fish than me in an easier way? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some of that, but it's mostly articulated as environmental protection. These people oh. are capturing all the fish. They're taking all the fish. They're going to exterminate it. And how dare but, these poor people pollute nature by being present? <laughs> I think that I think that's part of it. I it's, this is especially true when you're talking about um, interactions between anglers and native people. Mm. Uh, but it extends to non-natives and eventually it becomes, it's not quite a class battle because you will see working class anglers from Portland coming down and very much siding with uh, elite uh, fly fishers uh, against uh, people working the river with nets. And in, 18, in, in 1927, uh, Oregon passes a law that bans net fishing in, in, in the Nestaka. Right. 
And it's it's a law that is uh, introduced at the behest of a series of Willamette Valley sport fishing organizations and sportsmen's organizations, and it passes through. Um, it's um, it doesn't. It, there is some resistance to the law in the state legislature, but it moves through uh, largely because the leadership uh, supports it. Uh, but then because of the peculiarities of Oregon's progressive era, and especially the creation of uh, what was called the Oregon ballot, which is uh, uh, the provisions for voter initiatives, uh, recall, and most germane in this particular case, the referendum. Voters could uh, circulate a petition, and if they got enough signatures, they could challenge a law passed by the legislature, which is, in fact, what happens with uh, uh, the Nestucca closing bill. Um, uh, Local fishers and farmers gather together, and then they go and circulate petitions. They qualify for a June special election, and uh, the challenge is posted to the the body of – uh, voters around Oregon as a whole. And uh, it's it's hotly contested. It's hotly contested, but they ultimately lose. Oh. Uh, and they lose largely because of the votes that happen in North, in uh, the Northern or uh, Willamette Valley, uh, especially city folk, uh, okay. where they even lose the support of uh, unionists themselves. So it's... So, so- so what? Uh, this is one of the the surprising things about the story that you tell. When I when I uh, am, uh, read about the defeat of of the net fishermen, I just thought, well, there is going to be no more salmon fishing in the Nestucca. What what happens? What's the what's the this 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 the 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 persistence of of this calling? Sure, um, the. Uh... The campaign was waged by anglers on the notion that they would turn the Nestucca River into a sportsman's, uh, an angling heaven, uh, but also as a brood stream from which they could gather excess eggs and redistribute them to other places. Uh, The problem is that the anglers don't really ever show up in force. Um, They, uh, and, and, the depression has something to do with this, a lot to do with this. Uh, and it's partly because in the West, the depression starts before the car, uh, the market crash in 1929. So uh, the economy is slowing down already in 1927 and 1928, and then it implodes in 1929. Uh, the seed stream theory, the idea that uh, the, the salmon in the Nasekka Valley would basically provide enough eggs for everywhere else was always a bit diluted both biologically and in terms of just the scale of the fishery over time. Um, The assumption was always that the people who lived in the valley who depended on this fishery would make do some other way. And the fact was in conjunction with all the other things that are imploding in the economy, they couldn't. So they simply became outlaws. Uh, they carried on their fishing. They, uh, they tried in other streams, but they very quickly came back and began to work the Nestucca River as poachers. And mm-hmm. this was an edgy activity because a capture would have led to uh, the confiscation of uh, a lot of capital, a lot of their wealth, and their, what some of the families that I talked to when I first did the research for this uh, regarded as the only way they made it through the depression. I, I remember my grandfather who, who uh, lived on the Oregon coast during the depression, he, he refused to eat mussels um, because that was the only way that his family was able to live through the depression was, was scouring the, the beach and, and, and eating mussels. He had too many mussels during the depression. I, you know, I, I, I've met people who have stories like that. Crabs turn out to be another one of those uh, foods that was readily available in certain areas, but it became associated with uh, abject poverty. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have the 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 uh, these people turn 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 to poaching, and it, it, the best fishing is at night anyway. So that helps with the clandestine. Uh, uh, nature. We, we I, I want to be uh, uh, mindful of your time, but there's two bits of the story that I want to uh, uh, just uh, uh, mark out before before we have to close. Uh, sure. And the, and and the first is is what what how how, how does this uh, river fishing enter the ocean? 
Well, um, the reason um, for uh, fishing in the river was that uh, there was no port. Uh, the the um, the bar, the place where the river meets the ocean, was incredibly rough and dangerous. So all the fishing was confined into the river, uh, and at the same time, because there's this geologic feature just north of Pacific City called Cape Kowanda that blocks the northwestern swell in the summertime. Small boats could go out through the low surf at the, uh, at the Cape uh, to do bottom fishing, basically rockfish, lingcod, uh, some crabs, and a few other things like that. Uh, but that was largely a summer activity and largely oriented towards uh, uh, the tourist economy in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, it then expands with the advent of the mink ranching that takes place in the Nesteca Valley as well, because the fish become the basic food for uh, feeding the minks. Uh, right. But, I, I, I'm having a flashback here because I remember my, my parents talking about mink farming when I was a kid and I never understood. So you have mink, you have a mink farming industry that's, that's feeding off of these uh, uh, ocean fish. Right. And some of the uh, people who are fishing for bottom fish are actually mink ranchers themselves. So they're, capture, they're capturing for their own operations and to sell to other people. It's very entrepreneurial in that yeah. sense. And it's... Um, uh, it's uh, uh, quite um, uh, it's quite interesting to watch how this unfolds across the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, because you see people who are at one level just trying to figure out how they can make ends meet any different way, whether it is fishing in the winter for the canneries or fishing in the summer for the tourists. But along the way, they also begin to realize, well, mink ranching might be something else I could do, or maybe, you know, uh, penning tourist uh, uh, animals, uh, their horses and their oxen and things like that. So, you know, you see a tremendous amount of creativity over time with all this. Um, uh, and at the same time, it's a it's a seasonally confined activity because come early September the ocean kicks up and that's the end of it. And really with as with all other things, um it's hard to transport these perishable items very far. Yeah. Uh well and salmon fishing gets into the ocean, right? In in in, in the post war era with the well, yeah, well, it actually starts much earlier, but again, as a seasonal lark, essentially people who are going bottom fishing start carrying along passengers when they think they can capture salmon and they chart, you know, they become charters and they charge yeah. the tourists a certain amount for a steeper. Yeah, well, it's for fun, but there's no limits on any of this stuff, but uh, it's a way of making extra money. With the closure of the river fishery, there was an effort to sustain uh, the uh, the net fishery um, for more than a decade, uh, and they were also at the same time fighting to get the river reopened. They pushed. They they uh, there were at least four separate bills and four separate uh, sessions that attempted to reopen the fishery, and none of them succeeded. But the point was they wanted to basically restore their fishery. Yeah. By the late nineteen thirties. It's getting very difficult to do that. There are, uh, there are a tremendous number of uh, game wardens running around trying to capture poachers, and they do capture a few, but it's getting more and more dangerous to do this activity. It's also that the river's getting harder and harder to fish because without um, the ability to mobilize a lot of people to clean snags, is just less and less areas where they can run nets without fouling them. Uh, and that's where you see it by about 1939, uh, many of these fishers beginning to shift their activities more exclusively to the ocean in the summer. Um, and then what they do is they sell to tourists much more so because they're focusing more on salmon than they did before. But they're also increasingly either packing those fish in barrels, salting them and packing them in barrels, or transporting them by wagons to Tillamook or to Sheridan or other inland markets. And let's talk about um, this this what this this really interesting um, form uh, of 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 boat called the dory. Sure. 
which which seems to if if, if I'm wrong, uh, if I'm not wrong, it's it seems to be uh, uh, just used in the Nastaka. Well, it's the dory itself was actually only used at Cape Kowanda. Uh, in the Nastaka, what you had were um, plank boards that had to be kept. Uh, they were butted together. This is not uh, a very great structure for a boat, but the, the freeboard was maybe 18 inches high. So these are low sided boats, flat bottom with a square stern for pulling the net over. And at first they tried to adapt those to the ocean. And it was very difficult because being uh, the Kuanda fishery essentially operating by rowing through the surf, it's, uh, it was easy enough to row out yeah. uh, with a flat stern dory because you could point the bow into the waves and just go like heck. But coming back, you, you're much slower and the waves would always be hitting the back of the boat. And what you needed was a double bowed boat. Um, in the process, um, they innovated, uh, uh, the fishers who were working there built up the sideboards more. So they were at least 24 inches and then higher over time. Uh, they created a double bowed uh, boat and uh, with a rake, the, the bow at both ends bent upwards to help break the, the wave action hitting against it. Um, and they modeled it over, uh, they modeled their, uh, their design on the famous uh, 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 cod fishery dories that were also double-ended. But this was largely a kind, uh, from everything I can gather, somebody saw a picture and then just went and built their own thing. There were no plans for any <laughs> of this stuff. There's, there, there's, there's, there's something that, that, that keeps on coming up in your story, which is just the, the, the sheer amount of ingenuity that, the, that your, 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 your uh, uh, subjects use to continue uh, to ply their trades uh, in the Nastaka, given um, changes in law, changes in the economy, changes in the ecology. Like this is, it's it, it's such a a wild story of of, of innovation to, to see people. the The first stories were seemed to be really jury rigged and ad hoc and and not super comfortable, right? Oh yeah, no. There's there's nothing about this. This dangerous maybe would yeah. be a different way. <laughs> no, that that's definitely the case with this. That you know the the idea of going out in the ocean, leaning over the side of a twenty four inch sided boat, and trying to pull up cotton lines uh, without uh, life jackets, without uh, maybe anything but at best a compass. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is this is dangerous stuff. And yet, so why? Why do people do it? You say there's meaning in it, and I'm, I'm, like, what? Yeah, what? What's compelling about this kind of work? Uh, You're a you fisherman. Know, you you yeah. fish this area yourself, right? I can I can give you lots of words, but in the end, it's one of those things that you have to go through it to decide. Uh, for me, getting on a boat, being out in the ocean, running my own boat. Uh, and when I was fishing, working 45, 55 hooks in the water, I was interested. It was fun. I was trying to match the rhythms of my body and my mind to this dynamic thing called the ocean and yeah. think like a fish. And the intellectual and physical challenges just, um, I, I hate to you know use the pun, but I got hooked. <laughs> uh and so let's 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 talk about what happens the 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 other big uh, uh, economic engine of this area that you say has been happening since the 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 nineteenth century. Let's talk about the tourism story because the, with the the anglers in nineteen twenty seven they had a dream of making the Nastaka a resort for uh, for tourists. Some people build up campgrounds and it fails, um, but after post war. Um, it, it succeeds in, 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 in some respect. And it succeeds so much, I want to give a spoiler alert. Right now, uh, if you go to uh, uh, the, the Nastaka area, you can eat at a gastropub. Yeah, yeah. There are, there are a number of uh, pubs. There's a very good Mexican restaurant right in the middle of town. There are a lot of different places here. But this is actually a story of waxing and waning, really from 1886 on because it's in that year and the next couple of years that you get the first people 
plotting out and trying to invent a place that they call Ocean Park. And it was deliberately designed as a speculative enterprise to sell summer resort homes to people. Hmm. They, they cited it badly because they put it out on what turned out to be one of the most regularly flooded uh, pastures <laughs> of the whole lower part of the river. But in the process, they laid out this idea in part because there were already people by the mid-1880s coming to the coast because it was the lowest, shortest way through the coast range. And uh, they tried to market that. In the 1890s, they move it downstream and uh, relabel the place Pacific City by the early 20th century. Um, and it grows. And part of the reason that it grows during the early 20th century is that's when the first campgrounds are set up in the summertime. And they do very well during the 19-teens, the, the 1900s, and 19-teens, and the first part of the 1920s. In fact, there's a larger health resort just inland from there as well. So yeah, there the, are a lot which, of different which, which this is another little fascinating part of the story. The, the, the health resort is based on kelp ore. Yeah, yeah. Which you can buy. I, I Googled it. A, an, a descendant of the original kelp ore guy is now selling kelp ore again you can buy it if you if you google kelp ore you can you can you can buy your own kelp ore cures really i yes. did not know it was being sold again yes uh, i think I, I i in fact found two places that are selling kelp ore um, which it, it it is it is fossilized kelp that is supposed to have some sort of health benefits is is this the is this the uh, a descendant of the Brottons? yes I'll yes there's there's even a uh, uh, a a tab of the web page that tells the story of the original Broughton uh, 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 resort in, I think, in or Oregon, right? It's yeah, it's um, it's just um, southeast of Pacific City. It's actually the Pacific City wraps around uh, Broughton Mountain. Well, so. I, I will I will drop a link to uh, uh, this website in the show notes of, uh, of if anybody wants to experiment with kelp ore. No, I. I no, just as, as as a historian, you did not mention any miracle cures, so I'm assuming that that the kelp ore didn't really work. Well, actually, that's what they sold it on, and they had a spa, a very vast spa, actually, during the 1920s uh, that drew people from all over to take the cure, and it was marketed. Uh, but it was also increasingly coming into conflict with medical debunkers who were testing this stuff and saying, you know, there's nothing here. So yeah. um, uh, ultimately, what what does in the spa is not so much medical debunkers as uh, first a failed lawsuit, and then uh, most of the family contracting uh, tragically contracting uh, tuberculosis. Yeah, from one of their their patients. Yes. Yes. Um, so there's yeah, but let's let's jump ahead to the to the post war story. Sure. Um, of of what seemed of 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 let's 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 lay the groundwork for for uh, Pacific City's uh, present. Um, uh, uh, I think well, probably not in twenty twenty, but present success as a tourist destination. Sure. Um, the you know in the early post war period, you had a few people begin to, including some of my relatives, who began to return to uh, the valley after the depression. Uh, to establish summer homes down there, but it was a relatively quiet place. It was, you know, until the late 1960s, I think the population inside Pacific City in, in particular was no more than 300 people year round. And mm -hmm. in the rest of the valley, it was overwhelmingly dairy and uh, logging country. So um, it's a pretty rural place. There are no incorporated towns. Uh, the summer fishery grows little by little across the 1940s and 1950s. Um, and in the process, it also becomes a more capital intensive fishery. Uh, people start building bigger hulls, uh, adding um, uh, uh, engines and uh, little by little beginning to borrow from the larger troll fisheries that operate out of ports like Newport, Tillamook, uh, Astoria, and other places. So what you see on it is like a miniature troller emerge uh, with the dory, still pushed off the uh, beach uh, through the waves, 
Um, but slowly, every year, adding a boat or two, um, and by the early 1960s, actually having uh, enough, uh, for quite a while now, enough uh, boats that there are multiple commercial buyers in town, uh, oh, wow. which, which makes it for a very stable fishery across time. And uh, it also begins to attract the attention, attention of non-locals who begin to realize, um, and teachers are um, uh, a, a big part of the story over the next 15 years. They begin to realize, well, I'm not doing anything in summer anyway. I could go buy myself a boat and I could go hmm. fish during the summer. And you see teachers actually being driven and in, uh, drawn into the seasonal economy as well. Huh. Coming down from from places like Salem and and, and inland to to, to stay uh, uh, by the beach in summer and, and and fish. Yeah, it's a motley crew. It's a lot of different people who are basically beginning to gather there. But it's still, even in the early nineteen sixties, um, it's still a pretty intimate affair. The regulars are no more than twelve. Oh, um, that's that's small. Yeah, but. Weekends, you can have 20 to 25, and by 1965, you have close to 100, and then it grows extraordinarily quickly after that. And so let's let's just jump to today. If we went to Pacific, I, I'm going to go to Pacific City when the world opens up again, and, and, and uh, when we do our Oregon Coast Drive, I'm going to uh, check out the brew pub. I'm really excited. So what will I see when I go down there uh, uh in the indeterminate future when, when things are finally open again? Well, um, I, I, the best preparation for that is to start off with one of the photos in the book showing it at uh, the place in 1957, and you get a sense of just how constrained Pacific City was as a settlement uh, uh, right there. And then the road will be pushed through out to the Cape finally. People stop driving just on the beach in order to get up to the Cape. Uh, there's a parking lot uh, there that's a county parking lot uh, designed mostly for tourists uh, who want to go to the beach. Uh, but at this, uh, and in the 1960s, it would be filled with tourists uh, in the summertime. Uh, the beach itself would be populated largely by um, uh, trucks with trailers carrying the boats uh, back and forth. And, then in the 1970s, you get more and more people coming. You get a much more heterogeneous population. Uh, the businesses around the parking lot begin to grow. There are mm. multiple restaurants, uh, uh, eventually a pizza parlor uh, to go along with a couple of fish companies. Uh, and that continues into the 1980s. And the 1980s is a really crucial period for all this because up until that point, Pacific City, even in the time, time, summertime, was still primarily a blue-collar place where people were busy working. There were people coming there for the summer or for day, you know making day trips down to the coast. But um, around uh, the parking lot were still a lot of people working on a daily basis in that area. The 1980s devastates the economy and it does so for a variety of reasons. Dairying goes through its own shakeout. Uh, the logging industry is suffering both from high inflation and by the end of the de decade, uh, environmental restrictions. Uh, and fishing beginning in the late 1970s uh, suffers from essentially changes in ocean climate that uh, are primarily uh, responsible for driving down uh, the runs, the salmon runs. And all these things converge in some, even tourism doesn't do very well because people don't have enough money to go and uh, vacation. I was born and working in the 80s, and I just remember hanging over everything was this, was high unemployment, economic sluggishness. Um, it was it was hard for people to find jobs, even even in cities. City uh, in Tillamook County, the seasonal employment rate uh, topped twenty percent twice in the early nineteen wow. eighties. So wow. yeah, you're looking at a really devastated economy during this period, and that's unemployment. Underemployment is another figure that is poorly measured during this period, and then you have people who simply give up. So yeah. it, it's, it's, it's wholesale wreckage um, during this period. Uh, the one group that is active are uh, real estate speculators who begin to buy up lots and lots of uh, 
uh, acreage out uh, on the west side of the Nestucca River. And then in the early 18, or 1990s, get the century right here. Um, that's, a, that's a historian's curse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get it the right century. Yeah, uh, they get permission from the, the county agencies to begin to uh, develop large-scale uh, speculation and housing units. Uh, uh, you get a lot of different people building a lot of different things. And very quickly... Uh, because of the low uh, real estate prices at the time, they make a killing. A lot of second, a uh, lot of people uh, arrive as second home owners, um, mm. who you know their lives are elsewhere, but they are beginning to dominate the tax base locally mm. in a variety of ways. And uh, at that point, it's it's a really rapid social uh, socioeconomic shift in this, the. Uh, at least in Pacific City. Now, farther inland, by the time you get to Cloverdale and the other daring and logging towns at this time, the daring part of it is doing okay uh, uh, with some qualifications, uh, but the logging part is really struggling as well. Uh, But it's a very different story. But gentrification is really only taking place right along the coastal slice of the Nestucca Valley. And I mean, we talked at the top of the show about there being many different Oregons. And it seems that this gentrification story is a story of the NPR Oregon, the Oregon that you might be familiar about from national news, where it's tie-dyed hippies uh, and professionals coming in to coastal Oregon. Is that is that a good way to put it? It's, it is. it is. I mean, what they're doing is they're catering to a particular clientele that is expecting urban amenity, amenities at this point. The fact that they're looking towards a brew pub as opposed to a place that serves, say, Bohemian and uh, uh, Rhinelander and the other beers that dominated the valley in the 1980s. Uh, yeah. All that is shifting very quickly because they're, they're catering to a totally different clientele. The thing is that that other group of people is still there, but it's you can say that the many different organs can be found right down in the Nesteca Valley. Yeah, you you, call, you close your book uh, uh, with a imaginary tour through a number of the watering holes uh, uh, by the coast, and you show us these different organs. It's a great book, uh, really. Uh, Thank you. Enjoy the read. Um, well, well, uh, Jay, I, I, I'm uh, going to have to uh, uh, close it, but I I loved reading the book. I love talking with you. Um, every, it's 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 a really fascinating read and you, 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 you hit so many different things. Um, and I, I really encourage, uh, uh, my listeners to go out and get it. It's not a super expensive academic book. You can actually purchase it. Uh, and, 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 and I encourage everybody to check out, uh, Pacific city, uh, when things reopen, um, yeah. you're able uh, to get out there, but thank you very much, Jay, for coming on. Um, and thank you to uh, everybody who listens. If you like the show, check us out at historian.live. You can find show notes. I will post, uh, uh, some of the the pictures uh, uh, from Jay's book, including this um, uh, 1957 picture. Uh, I also check. We'll we'll post a link to kelpmineral.com, where you too can buy kelp ore um, and see its remarkable health benefits. Um, thank you to uh, Duncan Barton for the image, and thank you to Jonathan Lear for the music. Uh, we will be back in two weeks or so uh, with a story about. Uh, animals in London in the 18th century. Uh, join us. Then.